On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Quinn, and Quinn was in a toxic relationship with a rage-filled abuser. It's a story of caretaking, chivalry as a form of control, self-regulation, and threats of physical abuse. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. This is a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of toxic relationships. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad. And thanks for tuning in to this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And now, if you want to be a guest on our show, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Fill out that guest form and we will go from there. Also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we now have a community support button at the top of the page. But where does that button take you? That button takes you to our own safe social network, our new community. Our members are on there posting in our forums. We have integrated Zoom support meetings every week. We have prompt workbooks for our episodes to help you dig deeper and get more clarity. We have episodes that never made it to air. They are our bonus episodes. We have ad-free episodes on there. I have a bunch of them to upload. I've been a little late on that, but I got a bunch to do. And we'll be able to meet you know, people on there with the same interests as you, make friends. Our community members are all amazing, and they're here to support you. They're, they'll cheer you on, and you know, our, I think this community is amazing. So please do join us at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page there. Just click on the community support button. And you know, we have a friend of the show. And our friend is domesticshelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. Domesticshelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing, connect you with local resources, and find ways to heal and move forward. So please do go visit domesticshelters.org to access this free resource. And that's it for this week as far as notes go. We actually, no, we are actually starting a campaign for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is in October. We're going to be doing a five kilometer or a 3.1 mile run. So just, we're going to be mentioning that throughout the next few weeks as, as well. I'm going to start my training today. And that's going to, my hamstrings are pretty sore. Hopefully, uh, I'll be able to do it. I can get through the five kilometers. And now we're going to listen to our episode with Quinn. And Quinn, we recorded with a couple times. And this episode, we were having trouble with the sound. So 
uh, hopefully you don't mind the the sound on this episode. It's a good episode. There's some great metaphors in this episode. I love this. And thank you very much. Thank you uh, to Quinn for being on the show. And now without uh, further ado, here is my episode with Quinn. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Quinn. How are you? Good. Uh, much better than I was several years ago, which is where my story was. Well, unfortunately, this happened to you. You were in a relationship with an abuser. And today you're going to tell your story and you're going to help a lot of people. So I'm thanking you in advance for being here and sharing your story. I know you're going to help a lot of people. And now, without further ado, Quinn, the floor is now yours. Okay, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, Okay, so I will give a little bit of background about how uh, my life started which um, I now have a lot of connection as to maybe uh, how I ended up in a relationship like this one. Um, I had really loving parents that were very good to me, grew up in a nice family um, in a small town. Um, And, you know, everything was very uh, positive growing up for the most part. Uh, And that's why I think um, I would question a lot having been in a relationship like this. Uh, but there was um, one very disturbing event that um, that I think lasted throughout my childhood, and that was that I was raped by uh, our housekeeper, sort of. Uh, we had a housekeeper, and she had this, uh, I, I guess, relative who he took care of the lawn. He mowed the lawn. And for some reason, my mother thought when the housekeeper wasn't available, it would be a good idea to leave me with him for the day. And so I would stay with him on Tuesdays. I still remember that. It was only five years old. And um, and he would sexually abuse me on Tuesdays. And um, this became really upsetting to me. I have such, you know, very crystal clear memories of it as being a little child. Um, and then it was sort of forgotten about. Nobody spoke about it. I never, you know, we moved, and that's the last I knew. And I brought it up again when I was 12 years old. And uh, my brother said, you know, you're crazy, you're sick, you're disgusting. And I finally brought it up at the family dinner table to prove to my brother that it really happened. And as soon as I brought it up, I said, did something strange happen with that guy at the house? And my mother, you know, dropped her fork, and it was this really tense moment and, uh, you know, she said, oh, yes, yes, but, you know, we fired him right away, and end of story. And so no one ever talked to me about it again. No one ever said, um, Quinn, are you okay with this? Uh, do you need to talk about this? Um, I was always sort of brought up in this way, like, my mother was super optimistic. My dad was super optimistic. Everything's great. Everything's going to be fine. And I think everybody just figured everything was great and everything was fine. Um, and it and it wasn't the abuse that I think was hurtful to who I was, but it was the fact that nobody tended to it. So I sort of felt like, okay, Quinn, you're on your own. And I really approached my life that way, taking care of myself, not really accepting help from other people, not talking to other people when I had a problem, when I had an issue. And I think that really set me up um, for some things in life not to go so well because I just didn't make, I didn't make myself important. I just kind of thought, well, nobody really thinks I'm important. I'm not that important, but I'm just going to take care of myself. 
And uh, I didn't always do that when it came to my relationship with people, take care of myself, because, you know, I kind of thought that I didn't need to have an important part in that relationship. So I think that kind of started some things. Um, anyway, so I went on to, um, to get married, and I married a man who was very gentle, very kind, man, wonderful in a lot of ways, but um, an alcoholic, which became um, pretty severe, very severe, severe enough that um, we had two kids, and then uh, we ended up getting divorced. Um, I just couldn't handle um the, I couldn't handle, I did not know how to be the wife of an alcoholic, and I just couldn't hold it together. Um, and I need to focus on raising my kids in a more stable situation. So uh, we did divorce, but we were very, we were best friends, and we talked all the time on the phone. We raised the kids together um, with it in mind that he had severe limitations because he was an alcoholic. So that's when, around the time that I met um the man who I decided to call Trouble because I got to give him a name, so we're going to call him Trouble. And how old are your kids here when you divorce and then meet this man? Yeah, so they're about um, six and nine when I divorced, and they were around seven and ten when I met him. And how old are you at this point? And I was, I think, thirty-six. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, and uh, when I met Trouble, he was five years older than me. Um, I was obviously in a scary part of my life. Um, you know, a lot of women, when we have kids, we're not really planning on supporting ourselves, and we're not planning on that at all. So I was working a lot of part-time jobs. I was a musician. Um, I was getting my Ph.D., and I was homeschooling my children. So I was really busy. Um, and, you know, when my husband moved out, I was left with this house I had to take care of by myself. Um, which I really didn't know how to do. So I had a lot on my plate. And, um, you know, I've always been energetic, always been optimistic. I just said I'm going to work through it. I'm going to make this work. But life was definitely a little bit scary. You know, I had only been divorced, I mean, a little less than a year when I met Trouble. Um, so I actually knew Trouble before I started really seeing him or getting close to him. I went to a dog park, and he was in the dog park, and he was um, kind of on the periphery. I didn't really talk to him much. But I do remember that 9-11 had happened recently. And I remember that he would just give these outpouring diatribes about how tragic and how terrible. And he felt so awful for everyone. And and I thought, oh, this is a really, this man, like, really wears his heart in his sleeve. Wow, that's nice. Um, and then a little bit later, he ended up coming to an event that I was hosting through one of my jobs and that's how we sort of connected and started to become close. Uh, and at the time, I didn't know what mirroring was. And I think I know what it is now. Because this is everything like it went in the beginning with the love bombing and the mirroring. Because everything I was into, he was into. Everything I was interested, he was interested. Um, I, I was worshipped. I was on a pedestal. I could never, ever do any wrong for the rest of my life the way he would have told it at that time when I met him. Um, one thing that I had told him that I was doing was I had been reading a lot of spiritual stuff and a lot of different religions and Easter religion, East, Eastern religions like Buddhism and stuff like that. And uh, I talked to him a lot about how I loved the idea of, you know, peace and um, simplicity in life 
and this kind of thing, um, not having expectations. And then he said to me, oh, that is exactly me. And you know what? Expectations ruin relationships. And this phrase was the start and the end of our relationship, I have to say, because he said, you know, every everything in a relationship should just be people need to be free to be themselves. And I said, exactly. That's exactly what I think. And that is the way we connected. Um, and it's just ironic, uh, as anyone knows who's been in an abusive relationship, you are completely not free to be yourself. So that was just sort of the strange uh, irony there. So um, he also was very intrigued by my house. Oh, he loved my house. He thought it was beautiful. And uh, he just sort of had this fascination with having a house because he lived in an apartment. And uh, there was this whole, you know, kind of ongoing dialogue about how nice that was. Um, again, that would be an irony later on. So um, he was also really chivalrous. I don't think I've ever known a man in my life as chivalrous as he was at that time. You know, which is where every little twitch I made was like, are you okay? Are you about to sneeze? Do you need a tissue? You know, can I get you another fork? Do you want me to clean your fork? Let me get you a spoon. Maybe a spoon is better. And this was just constant um, reading my face, reading my emotions. Um, and he had this whole thing about I can really see into people. I really am connected to people. And I really know people like no one else knows people because I've made it a thing in my life to just really get inside people and know people. And this was presented to me in this comforting way. Like, I'm not going to ignore you. I'm not going to forget what your feelings are. I'm really going to, you know, help you open up. And he did um, succeed in opening me up and me telling him, you know, just about everything I had to say, which is really more than I had ever done. Um, my, my friendships with people were always me listening to their problems. Um, you know, I always had this feeling that I just kind of had to take care of myself. So here, finally, someone puts the key in and unlocks me, and I just pour myself out like an open book. And this all took place in about, I would say, two months of this intense, well, intense, intense, close thing. And then there was the rage and one so, night. So, so before we even get to the rage, you know, with everything that's happened here in the first two months, you have, I guess, it's an intense concentration on everything you're doing. I not that's a bad wording. Attentiveness to yeah. your needs to a point where. He's overdoing what is needed, and that is overwhelming. It shows a chival chivalry or a chivalry a chivalrousness. Is that a word <laughs> that yeah. you are not used to? And the even though it's seen as chivalry. It is a form of, I guess, control of, of a sort in the sense of you're being conditioned right here with all of these attentive things. That your needs here are always going to be attended to. And that is a big hook for you. 
and you know you have common interests you're being mirrored at this point so are these common interests real common interests or as a fluke or is this something that he's really um mirroring in your opinion right no i think that he was mirroring most of and and maybe some of it was he was genuinely sort of just agreeing with me but i think that it was really mirroring more than it was genuine so after these two months how are you feeling about him and are you on board fully or are you a little hesitant in any sort of way oh up to this point i mean i am on board completely this is like um a Disney Prince Charming. I can't see anything wrong at all. And and it's not just I think he's a Disney Prince Charming. Um, like I've just gone out to dinner with him or something and just, you know, just imagined all this. It's that we've had these deep conversations, tons and tons of deep conversations. That's all our relationship has been for two months is deep conversations. So that makes me think that he's the real deal. So... So you're having these deep conversations and everything's going well. And then one day he rages. Yeah. He just flips out into a rage. Um, and this was when I forget what our deep conversation was at the time, but my past situation with rape came up and he had just completely blown his top. Um, and it was almost like he wouldn't say anything specific that angered him about it, but he was so angry and he was just spouting such craziness. It's hard for me to even remember anything that he said that night because I was so shocked and it was so Jekyll and Hyde that I was just completely unprepared. Uh, I know that he was throwing things at me like, um, you know, oh, you're, you're, you know, you're damaged and you're ruined and you're all, you've got problems, you've got issues and, you know, your whole family has issues and just, um, in this just really, really savagely mean way. There was not one second which was like, oh my gosh. I'm, I mean, wouldn't like 99 out of 100 people in the world say, that's terrible. I'm sorry to hear that. No, instead he said things like, well, you know, you just invite this and, you know, this is um, obviously, you know, this is a thing with you. I mean, when he got really angry about it. And the whole time I'm trying to calm him down and this was, this was what really amazed me because I'm very diplomatic and I'm very good at calming anybody down. You know, like if I'm in a work situation and there's a client that's angry, I know how to calm people down. There was nothing I could say to him, absolutely nothing to calm him down. It, I was trying so hard. I mean, I don't give up. I'm very, very uh, hard worker, so I'm really trying to calm him down. And I could not bring him down off of this. So it went on for something like two hours. And I was exhausted. And now it's like, I think we were out walking dogs. And so here I am with my dogs, like ready to keel over. It's like midnight and I'm cold and I'm tired and I'm dizzy. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what to think. So a few days went by and I'm trying to just, you know, calm myself down. Look, it wasn't what you thought it was. I mean, it's really bizarre. But whatever. Now I just want to get away from this guy because he's terrifying me. He's sending me email after email. Um, back then we didn't have text. That's how long ago that was. And he's just emailing me incessantly about this. 
and won't stop. And I'm reading these, you know, three-page emails, and I'm trying to give a rational response. And then I'm trying to say everything. Like, I'm trying to say, look, if this isn't working out for you, you know, that's okay. I understand. But then he keeps pulling me back in. And then finally, after a few days passes, he says, why don't you come over and let's talk about it? So, so I have one question. He's raging at you and blaming you for what happened or just really making you feel like garbage about it? Yeah, kind of making me feel like garbage about it. And then sometimes when, when he can't make his point enough, he is, he's kind of blaming me for it and saying that, you know, I'm the type of person that must get into this all the time, sort of like that. So he's blaming you for what happened to you when you were a child. And yes. then he starts knocking your character. Do you feel like he's trying to sow the seeds of doubt within you about who you are as a person right here? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And, you know, are you caretaking him as far as you are more concerned about his anger issues than about your own emotions and feelings right here? Oh, yes. That is brilliant that you said that because I never thought about that. That was exactly what was going on. That's exactly it. So are you and someone, I guess, that has always self-abandoned themselves when someone else's needs uh, are present themselves? Yes. Yes. I am. I am. I, I mean, and, and I'm... I'm a nurturing person. I have a lot of pets, a lot of animals. Always, I'm always helping people. I'm a teacher. I'm like, I, I mean, some part of it's just like my personality. It's who I am. So I kind of do put myself last a lot, but particularly in an emergency situation like this, I'm like, wow, there's a fire. I've got to put out this fire because nobody can talk about anything or, or go forward until we calm down. And so that sort of was always me in this relationship was the fire department. And I'm just trying to make sure everyone is safe. So, um, so this whole thing was making my head spin by the time I went to his house. And then he had sort of calmed down a lot and said a few things that were almost completely off topic. And, hey, let's watch this TV show. And the next thing you know, I'm sitting there watching a TV show with him. And by the end of the evening, he's kissing me goodnight. And we seem to be back together. And none of it even seemed to be up to me. Like, you know, the fire's out. And I don't know. I'm here. And it's like it never happened. And so I didn't even know what to do following that. Because the next few days and weeks or whatever, things are back to normal. And I was just really confused. And here we are marching through time and, you know, everything's fine. So it didn't occur, occur to me to leave, but I would think about that night and I would think about how much it took out of me and the hours that it took and how exhausting it was and terrifying it was. And I would just shudder and think, I don't want to see that side of him again. I just better not bring up anything in that category at all. Nothing about, I think we had also, when we talked about the rape, I'd also talked about, um, you know, pushy men, 
uh, like, well, you know, that does happen in life. You know, I've had like been on a date with somebody who's wanted to push me too far and I've said no. And, you know, and I think even that I was on that date that things were being pushed too far. He was throwing that at me too. So I thought I'm never going to mention anything about any man pushing any woman at all. Never. Okay. Off topic. Very dangerous landmine. So, you know, we went on and I thought everything was going to be better. Um, and one of the things that he loved to do was uh, talk about his sort of sad story. So his sad story, and this pulled me in because, because of my nurturing thing. Um, his sad story was, when you really look at it, not that sad. But to him it was, um, he had grown up uh, in you know, not, not having really finished his high school education. He barely finished it. They pushed him through and he graduated, but he was terrible in school, never felt good. He went to half a semester of college and dropped out. Um, but he always presented this as he was one of those people that was uneducated and it was of no fault of his own. You know, the system didn't support him. Um, he was poor, this and that, except that he wasn't poor. And his father made plenty of money. Uh, they lived in a nice suburban home, and he sent him to a private college. So it was just this way that he had of kind of saying, poor me, I never got the education that I deserved. And, uh, and he would talk about himself a lot, like growing up on the streets and how rough it was, you know. But it was a nice suburban town. So it was, it was sort of, it never made a lot of sense, but somehow roped me in as to feeling sorry for himself because he sort of felt sorry for himself, you know, and he would say, oh, well, someone like you, you get all the education, you've got your master's degrees, you're getting a PhD, you know, everything was just handed to you. Well, nothing's been handed to me. And it just, you know, it really didn't make sense when you looked back on it, but at the time it made me feel bad. He had a way of making me feel bad. He would he would say, you know, well, you know, you're you're this like white person from a white neighborhood, and you're upper crusty whiteness. Um, and it was funny because he was white too, and he was from a white neighborhood. So, like, <laughs> I I look back at this now, and this is kind of the one thing in our relationship that really makes me laugh that he did this, but but somehow reeled me in at the same time. Um, so. And he would sort of also talk about being alone. You know, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm going to sort out my Tupperware. You know, and you would, he just had a way of pulling your heartstrings in that sort of charming way that some men do or some people do, I guess, in general. So, um, so at this point, he had dipped into me to know everything about me and start, he started to predict things about me, um, which was a little weird, but at the same time, I felt really intrigued. He would say, oh, I know you. I know exactly what you're going to do. I know exactly what you think. I know exactly where you're going to be in five years. Um, and it was, I guess it was intriguing to me that he even cared, but it was a little confusing as to how he knew this stuff. Um, and then later on, I would kind of find out he was wrong about all those predictions. But at the time, it was sort of also intriguing. So that was sort of a part of what hooked me. Um, so so what happened in the beginning there, my kids were not involved in the beginning because I, I wasn't going to involve my kids. It was way too early in the relationship at that point. 
but um, he there was this evasiveness, and this is where uh, he really caused me a lot of pain. So he would, um, you know, the weekend would roll around. We were both not working. And he would say, oh, well, maybe I'll see you on Friday. And then it would be, uh, Saturday I'm doing this. And I don't know. I, I have this show I want to watch on TV, and I have to iron a shirt, you know, or something. So he would do this sort of commitment-phobic dance where I would rarely see him sometimes. Sometimes two weeks would go by, and I wouldn't see him at all. Uh, and it... It's, it, when I approached him about it and said, hey, like, what's going on? Are we okay? Because did I say something to offend? You know, I'm even afraid to ask. But, you know, what's going on? Would you, and he would just say, oh, I'm just, you know, backpedaling a little bit, just to don't move too fast, you know, which never seemed to be a problem before for him. And so suddenly I was barely seeing him. I was seeing him um, here and there. And the pain that I got, as I approached him about it, and each time he made me feel worse and worse, was was terrible, like the stabbing pain of rejection. Like this person that was so into me suddenly doesn't seem very into me. So I would sort of start to corner him and say, you know, I, I need to know one way or the other. Are we going forward or are we not? Because basically I wanted to, I had a life that I really had to get on with. And I couldn't be wasting time um, hanging out, you know, waiting for him to call. So, you know, he would he would sort of hold all my weekends. It was almost like he purposefully did it instead of just saying, you know what, I have I'm going to really want the day to myself Saturday. Uh, he would never come out and say that. He would always just kind of leave me hanging. So, um, over this period of time, uh, I had lost like ten pounds, and I wasn't heavy at all. Um, so I kind of went from being, like, normal to, like, kind of thin. And he noticed, you know, and he said to me one day, you seem to have lost a lot of weight. And I said, yeah, actually, I have. I haven't even really been trying to. I guess I've just been stressed. And then he cornered me about, I know what it is with you. You just want to marry me, and you're obsessed with me, and you're chasing me down, and you're stalking me, and... So much so, you're losing weight, you're a psycho, you need to go to a therapist, you're screwed up. So that became the next phase of the relationship where I was screwed up and I needed a therapist. So I did go and I got a therapist. And um, so, I, so, you're, so you're really believing what he's saying here about you at this point? That's the funny thing. No, I didn't believe it. I didn't think I was screwed up, but I said, hey, if he wants me to see a therapist, I'll do that. What I thought... Okay, so let's just, for one second, let's discuss this. So you don't believe what he's saying, but you go to the therapist anyway because you just want him to stop with what he's doing. Yes, there's two parts. So, So at this point in the relationship, how are you feeling about him everything that's kind of going on and, you know, right here where, you know, you get a change in a tactic that's being used against you uh, as far as, you know, this one, he's really attacking your psyche as far as your mental well-being. At this point, you just wanted to, you know, his arguing here or his, his, um, 
what do you, what would you even call this? His um, um, complaint about you to just stop. So so you're doing it. So what's driving you here to keep this relationship going? Um, well, I guess at this point I had decided that um, I'd already decided about Ben with all the evasiveness that he was a commitment phobic. And I'm a Googler, and back then Googling was a little harder than it is now, but I did Google, and I found all this stuff about commitment phobes. And I said, that's what it is. He's commitment phobic. And I'm going to go to this therapist that he wants me to go to because I can discuss how I can handle myself in this relationship because I'm having such a hard time with it. Uh, And, you know, I thought that all the anger and the rage came from his fear of commitment. And it may be partially true. That is, that is the truth. But, I mean, the rage and the anger and the abuse was all, like, over the top about, I mean, instead of just saying to me, I'm having, pro- I have problems with commitment, so I'm, ha- I'm struggling in the relationship. Instead, he was abusing me. I kind of believe that was what was happening. So when I went to this new therapist, I told the new therapist what was going on. Um, because that's the only person I would have confided this to. I wouldn't have told a friend or a family member because they would have said, leave him. Oh, my God, leave him. But what did the therapist say? He said, leave him. This is going nowhere. I can tell you right now, this is going nowhere. If he can't commit to pizza on a Friday night, he cannot be in your life at all. Like, there's no way that's going to work. So um, so I didn't – it's not like I ran back to him and said, look, I'm done with you. Uh, no, I wasn't going to believe the therapist because I, I said to myself, no, you don't understand him. Uh, he's so, you know, deep, and he's so caring, and all this other stuff. And, you know, I didn't do what the therapist said to do. So the hooks from the beginning as far as um, seeing you being seen uh, and all of the over-the-top affection has really uh, done its job here, and you, you're really not going to listen or uh, care um to see the red flags or the, uh, or the, or the abuse that, that is going on because that is just so uh, overpowering. Yes. So it's like seeing, you know, seeing a beautiful home that you want to buy. And then people say, coming in and inspecting it and saying, well, this pipe is a little rusty here and this door is broken, you know, and then, well, it might need partial new foundation. And you're kind of thinking, but the house is so beautiful. I still want the house. I've seen what this house can do, you know. So and that was where I was. And then also I was just of this mind because I am, like I said, hardworking and optimistic. Um, and I, I kind of said to myself, I can fix this, though. I'm going to get in there and I'm going to fight. I'm not giving up yet. I'm not going to – I mean, I already invested at this time like a four or five months in it. I'm going okay, to – Okay, so – okay, so <laughs> I'm mumbling here. So – Really, you're looking at this as, hey, I went to look at this house. I hung around in this house for a while. And, you know, it's a good house. I'm going to buy this house. You bought this house. And then you realize when you're in it, okay, there are some cracks. There is this. There is that. Other people are saying, ah, this is a money pit. You got to get out of this house. This house is only going to drain you of money. And you're like, no, do you know what? I, I can fix this house. I'm going to fix it up and I'm going to do it 
by myself. You people don't see what I see. I see the initial beauty is what I saw when I walked into this house. And I think I can restore it to what it was when it was originally built before any of these problems set in. And that is where you are right now. And you've just gotten uh, some paint. You've just gotten some uh, cement. You got all of your equipment out. Except you don't realize that this house is uh, haunted. Right. <laughs> right. That's that's where to say it. So the whole time up to now, trouble has sort of, you know, had been chivalrous, but now it's gone. I never did see any more chivalry. And, and he never, you know, took me out to dinner or um, it, he never really treated me um, in a way that you would sort of think of someone chivalrous treating you from then on. It just never, there was never anything like that. So, um, but what he loved to do is he loved to rant about things. So if he wasn't ranting at me, he would rant about other things, at which time I was thinking, this is awesome. He's ranting about something that's not me. And he would rant about politics. He would go on and on. One day I went to the beach with him, and the whole time he just ranted about politics. Um, And conveniently, he didn't really rant too much on either the right or the left side. He was kind of right down the middle, sometimes with one side, sometimes with the other. But, But I realized that he was strongly opinionated. And that was a side of him that he didn't at all show to me before the rage happened and there was like pre-rage and post-rage so post that first rage i was i was seeing a strong personality and he'd actually even said to me that when he flew into that rage he said ah now you're going to see the other side of me i'm about to show you the other side he actually announced that he was going to have a personality change at that moment and that's kind of you know what had happened so so he was very, uh, very opinionated about things and really thought he knew best. So if there was any narcissistic quality to him, it was that he really knew everything. He didn't know a lot about science. He didn't know a lot about math or history or this or that. But he knew people. He knew the way the world was and the way you should behave and all the moral and ethical ways to be. That was his shtick. So... That was what he would, you know, preach over and over again. Now, around this time, um, I had mentioned the therapist. And I had mentioned a couple of things the therapist had said about the relationship. Um, Very, very carefully. And that's when he said, I can't believe you went to a male therapist. I had this really lousy insurance at the time. and And I only had one therapist to choose from who could make an appointment with me in a 60 mile radius. And that was the therapist. I explained that to him, but he was like, Oh, you just, you know, you going to a male, you being alone with the male, we know what happens with that, you know, so you need to stop seeing the therapist. So basically what he did was he threatened that if I didn't stop seeing the therapist that he wanted me to see that he was going to leave me. I mean, I'm laughing now because he's the one that made me see the therapist. And was threatening he was going to leave me if I didn't see the therapist. Now he's threatening me, threatening me he's going to leave me if I don't stop seeing the therapist. So I did what I had to do, and I stopped seeing the therapist. Now, around this time, um, he had, he was a musician also, and he had made music for a film. And the film premiere was in the big city, 
that he was going down for the film premiere. So he asked me if I wanted to come. And I said, yeah, that's great. Um, but he said, I just want to let you know, um, when I go down there, there's some people that I know. And they last remember me being with this other girlfriend. So I don't want to just show up with a new girlfriend. So I want you to go as my friend. So, like, I can't, like, hold your hand or, you know, I can't, like, act romantic with you. And this is really strange because at this point we're seeing each other for, like, four or five months. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, whatever. So I go ahead to go to this thing. And he starts talking to other people at the event. And it's at some, you know, the after events at some bar or something. He's talking to other people. And I sit down at a table with this guy who's a friend. And the, this guy and me are talking and having a glass of wine. I felt really sorry for the guy because he was, like, really overweight and insecure, I could tell, and alone. And I felt sorry for him, so I was just being nice. And I was sitting there talking to him. So the next day... Trouble gets so angry at me and says, yeah, you're basically trying to pick up my best friend. My best friend can't stop talking about you. He wants your number. He wants to go out with you. And I said, I was just being nice. I was just being nice to him. I felt like he was alone and I felt like I was going to keep him company and talk to him. Plus I thought that he knew that I, you were seeing me. And he said, no, he, I, he doesn't know. No one knows. Like I said, I had this other girlfriend. I didn't want anybody to know. So this was all strange, right? And then, um, and then he accused me of really actively trying to flirt with his friend. And I remember thinking to myself, doesn't it occur to you that maybe your friend finds me pretty or funny or smart, or that some good quality, and that's why he's interested in me? Maybe, maybe I was not like flashing him or something, you know, because he made it sound like I was actively trying to pick this guy up. And I wasn't at all. I was just being nice. So that was the beginning of a really bad sequence of things because he would always accuse me of picking up everybody, picking up every man, um, to the extent where just about at that time I stopped using he. And I wonder how many other victims of abuse have found themselves doing this. So, you know, I uh, called the post office and uh, she said... <laughs> Or, you know, uh, I went to the doctor and she said, and so every story I had to tell, I would change he from she because I didn't want to be accused of trying to pick up this person and start some kind of sexual relationship with them. So around this time, um, which now is like six months into the relationship, he starts saying that he wants to involve my kids. Um, but at the same time, he's saying he doesn't want to involve my kids. So he's basically saying, um, I'm having problems with the relationship because I really don't want to be in a relationship with kids. And I said, well, that's kind of a funny thing. Um, you're very aware of my kids. He knew them. He saw them. You know, I really don't understand why you would get into a relationship, you know, with someone with kids if you don't want to be in a relationship with someone with kids. And, and, I, and he said, well, I really, I can't deal with it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's when I said, because at this point, I am getting a little wary with the relationship. And I said, you know what? I'm fine with just seeing you separately for my kids. I mean, I don't need to involve the kids. We haven't so far. And, I mean, what do we do? We go out, like, occasionally. We talk a lot, whatever. We can do that without involving the kids. I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, and then, of course, he 
couldn't have that. No, he said, I would not feel ethically and morally right about that. Which, again, seems strange to me because we rarely saw each other, really. He would avoid me so much. He was so intent on avoiding me that he wouldn't see me, like, you know, for sometimes two weeks in a row and just talk to me a lot on the phone and email me, even though we lived across the street from each other, basically. So, um, finally, we decided we were going to involve the kids, and he came down to earth about it. But there was just savage fights about it, savage fights about it. He didn't like the way he was raising them. Um, he didn't find fault with everything I said to them. Uh, he hadn't even seen me around them that much, but he had a whole list of criticisms. So, um, again, he was throwing me all around, and at the same time that he wasn't available a lot of the times, I decided to start, you know, kind of doing what I needed to do and making plans, even if it was going to leave him out. Because it's really hard to be in a relationship with someone that won't make plans. It's, it's almost impossible. So um, my father had a huge stroke around that time and he recuperated fine with zero damage but it was very scary at the time it looked like he was going to have damage and then he recuperated completely thank god um but my brother and i decided we were going to go home for thanksgiving so we went home for thanksgiving and i invited trouble but trouble did not want to come um that was just the start of him basically avoiding my family and friends he never and i think that's a that's a really red flag when somebody does not want to meet your family and does not want to meet your friends, uh, and doesn't have any time for the things in your life, that's, that should have been a flag. So I was away from him from Thanksgiving. A few weeks later, it was Christmas. Once again, I'm not going to have anything revolve around him. I was invited to three Christmas dinners at three houses, so I chose one. I did that. So I'm feeling kind of independent. I'm treading the waters. While I'm going on, I'm living life with my kids. And when trouble has time, I spend time with trouble. Um, and uh, he was, so, so would so would you say this at this point right here, things are at its best in how it's working for you that you're not overly concerned about uh, his needs right here. You're fitting him in when he needs you, not the opposite way. Yes, yes, okay. except. Fact that you know, I'm I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling a little rejected. Uh, we we had this you know intense relationship, and he seems to not want that. And so I'm feeling a little sad and a little rejected. And but I you're, def- but but you're in a way you're living your life, and then you're taking the breadcrumbs of when he is available. Yes. And yes. do you make yourself available even if you're not available? Sometimes okay. I was still. And I, I didn't like that I did that, but sometimes I was doing that. I was dropping plans at the last minute because, you know, well, I wouldn't have seen him for two weeks or three weeks. And so suddenly I'm like, okay, well, I guess I better drop this plan if I want to see him. And then there was this weird thing of just showing up spontaneously at my house, like at 9 o'clock on a Tuesday night. You know? So so he's, he's in control here in the sense of – you know, he knows that, you know, your general points of what he has to touch to kind of get you to do things. He's established himself in your life, and now he has taken back the seriousness of the relationship and stuck himself into a spot where he's kind of in control to move in and out at his uh, own pleasure when he needs 
you. And he can show up when he wants to show up. He cannot show up when he doesn't want to show up. He's leading his life and he's dictating everything as far as when you're seen. And if you, in your mind, like, oh, if I can't, uh, if I, I don't see him right now, then I, who knows when I'll see him next. So I'll go and do it and uh, maybe I'll drop some what I have to do here um, to go and, you know, be part of this guy's life. He's not trying to actively really be a part of yours. Maybe if he's bored. Right, right. That's always what I felt. I always felt like if nothing else was going on, that was any better. Yeah. You know, including something on TV. <laughs> then he went, you know, nothing good on TV. TV Which, you know, I'm, we're saying it here in, in as far as the matter of factly, but as you were saying before, I mean, that's really upsetting to think about. And, and if you were to actually in the moment there, think about, you know, that living that kind of life and how that makes you feel and how that other person really thought about you. It's very upsetting. And, um, you know, you know, just the lack of respect that's really going on for you, your own feelings, your time, um, you know, it's just really upsetting. So were you, were you, um, you know, were you crying a lot during this time or were you just trying to figure out what was happening? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, I remember a particular weekend where the weather was really bad and it was like January and it was a Sunday and I was just sitting there in the house. The kids were with their dad that weekend. And you know, it's really hard when you get divorced to, to, you know, get used to those weekends where the kids aren't there. So I'm alone in the house, just sitting there looking out the window and just crying and feel, feeling like I have someone across the street, basically. I mean, like a block away. And I, I'm alone. And I'm alone to the point that I don't dare call him and ask if he wants to get together. And I, would, and I don't dare even call him and say, I'm lonely. I'm feeling kind of sad because the kids are gone, you know, and stuff. Like, can we hang out? Like, I'm, I'm afraid already at this point in the relationship to do that. I mean, this is how... Because, because, if, because if you do that, he might rage back at you. Yeah, he might fly into a rage. Now it's an issue. I'm going to get insulted for meeting him. Um, anytime I just say, hey, can we get together this week? I'm being needy. So I'm constantly being punished for being needy. So, so here he has me in this state. And then because I'm so used to, in the beginning of the relationship... I am so important to him, and now I'm not important to him. That that's just such a dissonance. And I and I remember hearing this one person. I can't remember the name that you had interviewed, and she said, "I just keep wanting to get back to that first person, that first that first couple months of the relationship. I'm trying to find my way back there. That was me. I identified so much with that. I wanted to get back to that first beginning of the relationship. So then it's Valentine's Day." And I don't expect anything from him because, I mean, this is now not the romantic boyfriend at all. And he shows up at 1030 at night when he's about to go play hockey because people play hockey really late at night in those men's leagues or whatever. And rings the doorbell. There he is. It's like, wow, it's Valentine's Day. And he hands me a cardboard box. And in the cardboard box, there's this, like, glass rose and... He's like, happy Valentine's Day. It's not wrapped. 
at all. It's not like it's just in this cardboard box. And I can't even imagine that he went out to buy it. I'm thinking that someone else gave it to him or he had it or his mother had it or something and he just brought it by. And and I was so touched. Like I couldn't believe that he stopped by my house before he went to play hockey and gave me a rose. Like that to me, because you because of, I guess it's all relative. It had been such a dry period for months with no romantic overtures that this seemed to me to be so intensely romantic. And I, I think that's what happens when you get caught up in that web, you know? Um, he also, you know, would always say, oh, um, well, right before my birthday every year, and my birthday had been coming up, he would say, oh, birthdays aren't important. Birthdays are not, you know, birthdays are so, people are ridiculous with their whole birthday thing. I mean, what does it matter? It's a random day of the year. It's not, why, why do people, you know, so he would go on and on about that. And then when my birthday came, of course, he would do not really anything. He would say, he would email me, happy birthday, and that was it. No, usually no gifts, you know. Um, sometimes we might go out to dinner or whatever, but it was, you know, it was never um, the way you would think. And I was always made to feel sort of guilty about having any pleasure in my birthday. So birthdays, I would, I would then come to dread birthdays. So eventually he and your children are able, he eventually does kind of get involved in your life in the sense of, you know, being around your children a little bit more and establishing a relationship with them uh, a little bit later on. So what happens there? Well, right away when he decided the children were going to be involved in my life, which is about, in his life, which is about five months into the relationship, um, he became like Mr. Dad. And he would show up at the house and he would play with them, usually when I wasn't there. So he'd usually stop over and see them when I, when I wasn't home. Um, he would he even uh, volunteered to take them to their classes sometimes. Like he would drive my daughter to ice skating. He took my son to hockey. He did stuff like that. And um, he was always Mr. Fun and Games and playing with them. And my kids loved him, absolutely loved him. He would, he would hang out in my daughter's room with her and uh, watch her do her art and talk to her. And he was just a perfect gentleman with them. And, um, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't find someone that would be better with them than he was. And that's when I was really, really hooked. Because through all of this fighting, terrible stuff, he always hurt with my kids. And I think that was the one thing that made me really feel unable to ever end this relationship. This is really why it was going to go on for another, like, nine years after this. He, he was so hooked to the kids, and the kids started to depend on them, him. They would call him up, you know, when they were sick. He would bring them chicken soup. Um, you know, he was just there for them. And for me to take a second man out of their lives would have felt so terrible. So I really felt like I need to make this work this guy has a really good side to him, and he's really good with the kids. It's just me and him that we have stuff we have to iron out. So that's kind of the way I was feeling. Yeah, um, so right here, I mean, we've spent a while on, on you know, the, really the first six months here. 
and maybe six to eight months. And this is a nine-year relationship you're in. So, you know, once all of this stuff happens, you you then, you know, you're really locked in here now, especially with the kids kind of stuff. So in, in within the next nine year period, uh, I guess, what is the meat and potatoes of, of, of what's happening inside that? Or is this just, you know, can, the cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle that you're going through? And mentally, you know, as each cycle happens, if that's what's going on, um, are you mentally getting worse and worse uh, over time? Are you feeling like you're a little bit crazy? Um, how are you surviving and coping? Yeah. So, um, so it, it is a cycle. It's definitely a cycle of, he makes me feel, uh, you know, alone and alienated. He's raging at me. And then out of the blue, when I'm just, it's just about to snap. I'm just about to give up. I'm just about to walk away. He reels me back. Um, one of the things he would do is he would break up with me, um, you know, at various times, it would always be uh, a time like the day before my birthday or the day before Christmas. Or um, he broke up with me once uh, when we were supposed to take this big trip to France uh, with a band that he played with. And he broke up with me like the month before we were going to go. So he had this way of doing that all the time. And then he would never actually disappear, but he would start calling me that night screaming at me and sending me long emails the next day. And he would kind of torture me for a week and then get back together with me. So that would go on. And then out of the blue, he would just slip into the nicest person in the world and make me think that was almost like a gaslighting. Make me think that I was really overreacting to all of this craziness that because here he is, he's the nicest guy ever. And, and he would fool me so much that I would think, I can't imagine that he would ever be that way again. He must have just changed. And the funny thing is, although I'm, I consider myself to be a smart person, every time he got me with that, every time I thought to myself, you know, I, I can't imagine him being awful again. And, and it would happen. So it was a cycle, like you said, that repeated and repeated, but... Each time it got worse, and each time the anger got worse. And as it escalated over the years, it got to the point where he would be saying um, terrible things about my kids, not to my kids. He was never mean to my kids, but behind their backs, he would say terrible things about how they were awful, they were spoiled, and then he would call them really vulgar sexual terms. You know, like he would call my daughter the C word. He would, it would just say just such terrible things about my kids that I never would have been able to repeat that to anyone. He said terrible things about my father. Uh, Then that escalated into him uh, with crazy driving when I was in the car. One time he dumped me out on, he was going, didn't dump me out. He was going to dump me out on the side of the highway in the middle of the night in the freezing rain because his gas gauge was low and he felt like I should have noticed that. And because I didn't he would do that. So um, just like you see in these, uh, you know, in the old lifetime movies about abuse, you know, he would flip out over the smallest thing. 
over a glass of water, over burned toast. It was that kind of thing that he would get upset about, just just um, little tiny things. So I think it was about two years in, I started to get very numb. I started to get to the point, and I don't, I don't know if other people feel this way in these relationships, because I haven't really heard about this, but I would get numb. It's like a protective device where I stopped crying, where I couldn't shed a tear if I tried. I got extremely numb and empty. And then at times, I would cry and be really upset. But he would be sitting there yelling at me sometimes, and it's like I wasn't even there. It was, um, I guess, maybe some reaction to the abuse. Uh, And so that's part of the way that I stayed in. But, you know, I would definitely avoid the landmines. But when I stepped in one and it went off, I would just think, oh, here we go. I'm not going to get anything done for the next few days. This is going to be terrible. And, and I was busy. I worked a lot. So, so that was hard. So I started to get a little bit more independence in the relationship. And I started to really do things for myself. I started to make some vacations for my kids and myself um, where I would just make a reservation and I would say, we're going on vacation. If you want to join us, you can. Um, you can make a reservation, too. But I stopped trying to make reservations for all of us because I got stood up so much that I didn't want to deal with it. Um, I also, during this time, learned a lot about his past relationships and learned that basically before me, he had had, like, ten relationships in a row, each lasting about exactly a year and a half. So his whole life he'd had this pattern of just one woman at a time. And then he would start to tell me what some of the women had done and how terrible they were. Like one woman had said to him, "Um, I hope you burn in hell. And he said, can you imagine saying that to someone? Which I found really odd because I thought, wow, he said much worse things than that to me. I'm like, that's actually not that bad. And I can imagine him pushing her to the point that she would have said that. Um, He had another girlfriend that he said he wanted to throw her out the window. He said, she was so selfish, I wanted to throw her out the window. And she would get in these fights, and she would just disappear. She would just disappear and not call me back for three, four, five days. (laughs) And, And I thought to myself, way to go, girl. I wish I could do that. So, and part of the reason I couldn't do that is because of my kids. So I was the only one he had ever been with that had kids. And so that really hooked me in more than the others because I couldn't take that relationship away from the kids. You know, they would ask for him. um, They would go to him for things. They would even confide things in him, but they wouldn't with me. Did he ever use that against you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Everything I said was used against me. I mean, I remember one time telling him this funny story that when I was a kid, um, my brother said one time, instead of having steak dinner every Sunday night, why don't we save the money and send it to the orphans in Cambodia or something? And, you know, we were really little. I must have been like five. He was probably eight. And my mother was like, great, that's a great idea. We'll stop having steak on Sunday nights and we'll send the money to the, you know, the kids and And so that's what we did. We did save a child and we did the whole thing. And I said, 
you know, why did you say that to mom? Now we can't have steak anymore. And, you know, the whole family laughed. So I was told the story to him once, story, stupid story like this. And years later, he would bring it up all the time. You're so selfish. You don't even want to give steak to save the children. <laughs> I mean, he would use every little thing I ever told him. And I was astonished. Like, how did you even remember that? How were you able to dredge that up and, and do this? So as this went on, even though I was really, really numb, I also started to get really seriously depressed. I mean, like, things would happen. Um, like, I had a couple close calls with cancer, um, that, you know, where, like, I had a cyst on my ovary. They thought it might be cancers. And I remember kind of thinking, you know, well, if it's cancer and I die, it's probably all for the best because I'm not happy. I, I can't deal with this. This is, my life is so sad. And um, for some reason, I just never thought of just, why don't I leave him? Because I was so busy fighting the fight, trying to get him to love me again and being so committed to him that it never occurred to me really to just leave him. I mean, it would kind of mildly occur to me, but I wouldn't really take that you know, seriously in that way. So, you know, as this went on too, he was never there when I needed him. You know, my mother suddenly died. She was in a coma before she died. And it was the one time ever that I called him and I said, I really need you. It's the only time ever in our entire relationship that I said, I need you. My mother is dying. My brother is trying to get here, but he's not going to be here till tomorrow. He can't get a flight. And, you know, I really need someone here besides my father to hold me together. And he just said, well, you know, I'm working. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't come. And uh, it, it always happened. Anytime I had one of my dogs die, whatever, he couldn't come. He couldn't be there. So I felt like I had, he wasn't going to hold me together at all. And, um, and he would, punished me so much about everything, um, gaslight me so much about everything, um, that I was afraid to mention anything. So it got to the point where we were making conversation, I couldn't say anything about my house because he was always angry at me about my house. Um, you leave the porch light on sometimes when you go to bed. Um, you know, sometimes your kids' toys are laying out or whatever it would be. He would just light into me about how bad of a homeowner I was. So I couldn't say anything about my house. Um, I couldn't say anything about my dogs because then it would be like, oh, you love your dogs more than you love me. Um, I just couldn't. There was every area uh, there. I, I couldn't find a topic of conversation where I might not step on a landmine and cause rage. Um, then it started to get really bad to the point that he would get in an argument with me I shouldn't say argument because my definition of an argument is where two people are arguing about something, not where someone is basically bashing the other person. That person's trying to defend themselves. And that's really what it was. He was raging at me on the phone and he said, I'm going to hang up this phone right now and I'm going to come over there and kill you. And you know what? I don't care if I go to jail because it would be worth it. Um, 
And when he said that, I was so terrified that day, I actually got in my car and left the house. That's how seriously I took the threat. So he started to get, to, to threaten physical abuse. But he was never physically abusive. He actually never laid a hand on me. I don't know how he was able to restrain himself from that. Because you had such a degree of rage, I would often ask myself, how do you have this much rage and not physically act out? It's just unreal. Um, and sometimes, you know, he would, he would be saying stuff like that to me, and then the kids would walk in the house, and he would just suddenly act like everything was fine. And the rage would completely leave him, and it was like nothing happened. And then my kids would look at me and say, what's wrong? Are you, like, drunk or something? Like, why do you look like that? And I would be such a mess. And so then I would always say, oh, you know what? I ate something bad. I'm so nauseous. I just have to go to bed. And I would go to bed. And then he'd stay up with my kids laughing and playing. <laughs> and um, because, you know, I always covered for him. I never told them anything about him. I didn't want them to know, you know, what was going on. Even though he talked so badly about them, you know, behind their backs, I just couldn't. So, um, so he, he became so, so cruel, but in a random way that um, I have to tell the story about the mice because I had in college taken a psychology class and there was this experiment where there were these mice and the mice would be shocked for different reasons in this experiment. I know it's really mean. Um, and they would not care. They would get shocked um, every time they did X or Y. They would get shocked. And they would, you know, try to avoid those areas, and then they would go about their business. Then they would do the second experiment where they would shock the mice randomly in different places for no reason. And the mice became depressed. And that was me. I was the mouse that was just getting shocked and rewarded for no reason, and I couldn't, I, I felt helpless and really, really depressed. So I stopped, I stopped dressing nice. Um, I wasn't really, you know, really having much enjoyment in anything at that time. I was really trying to. I even took up jogging, which I had always wanted to do, and I ran a, um, some 5Ks and stuff like that. But I was really very unhappy and um, just, just lonely. I was really lonely, and I would see other couples that were nice to each other, and I would just, my heart would just break. Um, and, of course, he kept on, you know, with my kids all the time, um, you know, being close to them. Um, and then my alcoholic ex-husband died. Um, and this was this was a huge tragedy. It happened really suddenly. He was found in his apartment. And the night that he was found, trouble came over to my house. Um, instead of giving me sympathy, uh, just yelled at me for hours and told me that I was the black widow, that I had allowed my husband to be an alcoholic, and that's why he died. It was all my fault. Um, so right after there, I had to to kind of get on with my life. And it came to the point where I realized trouble was in the way. He wasn't helping me. And so I was so busy trying to get my son ready for college, trying to deal with it, the aftermath of my ex-husband's death and how my kids were feeling. 
I didn't have time for trouble yelling at me for hours. So it was more of a practical standpoint that I would say, uh, trouble, I'm really busy here right now. Um, I just, I need you to go. And I would actually send him out of my house. And there he would be screaming and yelling, and I would just send him away. So that was that was huge, and I think kind of the turning point. Um, and then shortly after that, I had to take my son to college, as I was saying. Um, and uh, it was hard because his father had just passed away a month before this, and now he was going to college. So I went down with my daughter. We took him to college, and um, there was this big, like, ceremony. When you first take your kid to college, it's a big ceremony, and, and there's this huge auditorium, and all the excited parents are sitting there, and they have all these presentations. And Trouble starts calling me incessantly on the phone. And he's furious about something. I don't even know what it was because it could be anything. And every time I threatened to hang up, he was going to break up with me. He was going to break up with me. And finally, I hung up. And I said, I really have to go. And he said, we're done. And I hung up with that. So I'm sitting there in what should be this wonderful first day of my son's college, weeping with all these people looking at me like, wow, she's very sentimental about her son's first day of college and um, ended up having to tell my daughter why I was weeping. And I had never told her anything about trouble being the way he was. And I didn't tell her he was abusive, but I said he broke up with me and uh, I think I just have to let this go. And uh, I, I wish I hadn't told her because it was a lot to put on her. She was only 15. Her father had just died. Um, but I was breaking down and I couldn't, I just couldn't handle myself at that point, which I think was also kind of terrifying. So what I did going forward was I just started hanging up the phone. I have to go. I can't talk right now. Um, and I, I was extremely busy, um, dealing with life. So he has broken up with you, but he's still trying to call you after, and you're having none of it. Well, no, I wish I could say that. That wasn't exactly true. After he broke up with me that day, of course, we were back together two days later. He, he you know, rescinded that because that's what he always did. He, he broke up with me probably about 100 times during the 10-year relationship. So, um, so, no, of course, he was back together with me. But what I was not doing was I was not entertaining the rants. And I noticed that when I didn't entertain the rants and I got off the phone with him, he'd be really angry for a few days, and then he would just come back to me like nothing happened. And that went on for a while, but it wasn't what he needed from me. He needed a punching bag that would say, out. You know, it's like those, those boys that the dogs have, you know, that they bite down on the toy and it squeaks. He needed me to squeak, and I wasn't. I was just not entertaining it. So so even though he kept coming back to me with me cutting him off, um, he was pulling further and further away. And um, still, you know, raging at me and stuff like that, but pulling further away. Now, around this time, he, um, he had bought a country house. And he had um, one, he had this big emotional tantrum about not having enough money at one point, and I paid the property taxes for him, um, which were like $4,000. And he was like, oh, I'm going to give that back to you. Of course, I'm a man. You know me. I'm a man of word, ethical, moral, whatever. Um, and I never, never got that money back. Um, 
He also disclosed to me around that time um, that he had been having uh, um, phone sex relationships with a few women for like years. And that was part of the reason that he was in financial trouble because it because it's one of those things like those lines where you call in. Uh, but the interesting thing when he told me that was he's very angry at me. You're boring. You're um, you're not adventurous. Uh, you're stupid. Um, you know you're you think you're so great. Um, you're not even that pretty. You know just all those kind of insults were just so. So, so in a way, here those insults are actually challenging who you are. Do you have any? inkling to say that's not who I am and then go do any of the things he's challenging you to do? Well, the funny thing was that everything he said, you know, for example, he had said, you're never going to finish your dissertation. You're just never. Nobody does it. You're not going to finish it. And I finished my dissertation. He said, you're never going to take up running. You're not going to do that. You can't do that. And then I took up running, and I was running um, three miles every day and doing some 5Ks and stuff. Oh, no, so, but, I, but I mean it in the way of like when someone says, you're a fraidy cat, and then the other person reaction goes, I'm not a fraidy cat. I'm going to jump off that bridge too. You know, were, were you thinking like in terms of that was – because that seems to be an interesting manipulation tactic to try and use, which is to needle someone about – maybe being a prude or being, um, you know, scared to get them to do the thing that they want them to do to prove themselves. Did you do anything like that? Yes. And I think, well, I think that's what it was, that what that came from, because he was trying in, in that last year, he was running out of things to do. Like he couldn't rant anymore. So I think he decided to start pushing sexually and he was like, wanted me to do things I wasn't comfortable doing. And he would say, oh, we need to have a threesome. And I was like, no, I don't want to have a threesome. And he was trying to push me to do that. So I think that was part of it, you know, that, um, that and I remember that, that there were some other signs that I could figure out that there was something going on to do with the phone sex. So that was another thing. He got mad at me that I hadn't figured it out myself, you know, and I, just said, well, you can tell me what you want to tell me. I mean, I don't know why I need to be a detective and figure it out. But um, so that was something that um, that really pushed me away too. That really helped me know that this whole time he'd been having these this phone sex relationships. I mean, I don't know if people consider that to be cheating or not, but to me, that that's cheating basically. So so that really helped me also with the distance. But you know, I still. Um, after my ex-husband's death, I was still with him another two years or maybe a year and a half after that um, of all this, you know, abuse and this punishing craziness. And then what happened, um, the, the last time that he broke up with me, um, which was actually the day after his birthday, I don't even remember what precipitated the breakup. Because, you know, usually when he broke up with me, it was about a really stupid thing. Like, um, you know, like I said, like a glass of water or something, right? So I don't remember what it was. But he broke up with me. He said, I'm through. You've tortured me enough. I'm going to come get my stuff, which was a dramatic thing to say because he didn't even have any stuff at my house. Um, and, you know, it's over. We're done. Blah, blah, blah. Not like I hadn't heard that a million times. But this time I said, okay. And I said to myself, okay. 
And every time after that that he called me and wanted to talk, I didn't want to talk more than two or three sentences. So I just, you know, wouldn't talk about it at all. Like if he had called me up and said, I'm so sorry for the horrendous way I've treated you for all these years. And it's just amazing that I haven't completely destroyed you with my abuse, but I want to try and make it up to you. I would have made up with him, but, but he would never say that. There's no way he would ever say that. So, of course, that's not what he said. Um, he would just insult me, and so I would get off the phone. So after a while, there was just no talking back to him. And then, um, strangely enough, about six months later, uh, I, I, I remember it was October, and... And I was pretty sure I wasn't going to get back together with him. I was, I was really sure, I think, in, in my heart. But this sealed the deal. There was this one day that I, it was the day before I had surgery, major surgery to remove an ovary um, that was not cancerous, thankfully. But I, I went out to the countryside, and I went to this winery. And there were these chickens and these goats. And I said to myself, life is beautiful. I'm going to have a farm. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to have fun. And I went to this swing dance that night, and I danced all night. And uh, the next day, my best friend drove me to the hospital to get my surgery. And I said to myself, I don't need him at all. I have my friend to support me through the surgery. I have my dream of having a farm, which I, by the way, now have. Um, and I know that everything's going to be fine. And I, I had arrived. And, um, and then about a month and a half after that, I met the man who's now my husband. And after I was with him for another six months, it's now been a year since Trouble and I broke up. Trouble calls me one day and he says, you know, um, I just have something to say to you. Uh, I really don't think that we should throw this thing away. <laughs> and I'm laughing saying, throw this thing away? What do you mean? And he said, our relationship, we've done too much work on it to throw it away. And I said, I haven't been with you in a year. I I've been dating this man for six months. I what do you mean? And he really had the gall to try to get me to break up with the man that I had been with for six months and go back to him. And he had the confidence to think I was really going to do it. Uh, and then he just got completely angry when I told him no. Um, you know, and I proceeded to get a few emails. But after that, he had too much pride to ever really approach me again. So that was, um, I think that that sort of sealed the deal. Yeah. So just one second, remember where we were. Um, you never actually told a story like what precipitated the, the first, the, the last breakup to begin with and what happened. Well, that's what I really don't remember. It's so funny because I can remember so many of the breakups in such vivid detail. And the only thing I remember was that we had a, a little birthday celebration for him, although he didn't believe in birthdays. We always seemed to manage to have a birthday celebration for him. It was just me and him and his best friend at his best friend's apartment. We had a little cake, a little dinner, and after that, when I got home, he called me and just went into me. I had done everything wrong. I had said everything wrong. I don't even remember. But it was just his usual tyranny. And then he just said what he always said. I'm breaking up with you. We're done. We're finished. It's the end. Um, I think that 
part of the reason was that his mother had passed away a couple of months prior to that. And that was a huge event in his life. And I think uh, something about that maybe pushed him over the edge, but it was enough for me. I think it was really that I just wasn't entertaining him anymore with the, hearing him talk anymore. Um, I also think there's a possibility he might have met someone or started playing around in person with someone, not on the phone, on side. I sort of had that feeling. I can't really tell you how it's like sort of the sixth sense sort of feeling. So in that time, you're not re- you're not engaging him. He's occupied most likely with something else. So you guys are able to have a bit of a separation, which gives you the time you need or a long enough time you need to be away from him. And in a way, the breakup happens in an unusual way for you. Um, where you're not being drawn back really and you're able to start formulating a new life. Right. Well, this breakup happened. I think it was, you know, it was like late in May. And I think it was the things that happened in that month of June that were so important. And one thing was that I did go to a domestic violence center and I had therapy with a person who really specialized in domestic violence, which I think is really different than a regular therapist. I mean, this is all they do. This is all they deal with. And they're really experts at it. So she was able to really push me into a corner and, and get me thinking clearly about it. Um, and she, I think it was after my conversation with her that I knew I was not ever going to go back to him. That was um, that was so important. And then I think also after my conversation with her, I was then strong enough to go and tell everybody in my life what was going on. I'm done with this relationship um, and that I was reaching out to people. And I started to reach out to people, whereas during the relationship, I think that happens to a lot of people. You tend to hide a lot from other people because you don't want them to know the dirty secret about what's going on. It's so dark and just crazy. You don't want to tell anybody. So I started reaching out to lots of people and I started to see friends. And um, I was a teacher, so I was going into summer. I had the whole summer off. And so I started just making all kinds of social engagements with everybody I knew. I was visiting new friends, visiting old friends out and about, and I didn't let myself get lonely. And I think, um, I guess what I was doing was I was taking care of myself. I was really just finally for the first time in my life, and my kids were grown by now pretty much. You know, they were then they were like ages 20 and um, 17. So, um, you know, I didn't need to be home, you know, cooking for them. So I was just really taking care of myself. And, um, and I realized in the end that I was going to take much better care of myself than he could. Not the witches doesn't even make any sense almost because he never took care of me at all when I really look at it. Um, it was just that I got, I got stuck, you know. And I, I have to make the other point that when he had these rages, they would go on for, for three, four, five hours, and, and then they would persist all week, and they would just go on and on and on. When you're brainwashed, when you're hearing that day in and day out, it's almost like you don't have time to have your own thoughts. It's like, um, you know, when, when uh, they get someone to falsely admit to a murder that they didn't even do because they're depriving them of food and relentlessly questioning them and making them tired. 
um, your mind can't even work. And I felt like I can just never even get my thoughts together. You know, it's um, my favorite time of day was going to bed. Because I would go into my bed and it would be peaceful and nobody can yell at me in my bed. You know, and, um, but, uh, but when, when you're just relentlessly harped on day in and day out, you really can't think for yourself. You can't, you're not working on all cylinders, you know? So after you are in your relationship with your new partner, uh, you know, did anyone say this is too soon? Number one. And then two, with the issues that were presented before this relationship began, what kind of work are you doing to uh, shore that up? And did you discover these things in that process? Yeah, well, um, when I got in my new relationship, I thought that I was all good to go. It had been six months. Um, I'm a very busy person, so six months seemed like a long time. A lot had happened in my life in those six months. Um, But I remember this one time that, we uh, went to visit my father, and um, my new boyfriend and I uh, drive up to my father's place. And my father said the drive is pretty good. Don't worry. I told him the driveway's good. Anyway, the car got stuck in the snowbank on the edge of the driveway. And my boyfriend turned to me and said, oh, my gosh, I wish you had told me that this was going to be the situation. I would have brought more equipment. Now we're stuck in the snow. So I run out of the house, uh, out of the car, into my dad's house, and I'm sobbing hysterically in the bathroom. And I almost want to laugh telling the story because um, my boyfriend came in and said, like, what's wrong? And what it was was that I was so panic-stricken that my boyfriend was going to explode into a rage and start screaming at me because... This is what I knew from my last 10-year relationship. And here, something had gotten wrong. We'd gotten stuck in the snow, and it was kind of my fault because I hadn't communicated about the driveway. And, and just that automatic panic reaction came to me. Um, but I was able to talk through it with my boyfriend, and I would, was able to tell him when I felt that panic coming. You know, anytime he disagreed with me or anytime he would just say anything to me, I would panic. So any time that I feel like I'm at work or whatever and someone says something slightly negative to me, I get this fear reaction where my heart is pounding and I can't talk and sort of like a panic attack, I guess. Um, and I've been trying to get better about that, but it's really difficult when you've been conditioned for so long. So... Um, you know, I wish I could say that I'm better, uh, but I can't really say that I'm better. I'm seven years out of the abuse. or No, I guess more like eight years out of the abuse. So I should be better. I'm better in a lot of ways. But I still, um, I did run into my ex-boyfriend at um, a flea market, and I, I became out of control. I just, he was walking kind of ahead a few paces, and he didn't even see me. But I saw him, and I just turned and started running and crying the other direction. And my 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 uh, 
current boyfriend, who's now my husband, was chasing after me with his daughter, trying to figure out what happened. Um, I couldn't stop myself. It, so so I, I still have, I guess, a little PTSD, I guess it is. And, and how about your issues when it comes to putting other people ahead of you? I think I'm getting much better at that. I, that has been the one thing. I guess sometimes the terrible things in life teach you good things. And I think uh, this really terrible thing in life did teach me how to do that. And, um, you know, I'm, I exercise that a lot in my relationship with my husband now. You know, and I say, um, today I want to do this. I want to work on this project. And so uh, I don't know what you're doing, but I need, you know, the afternoon to myself or whatever. Um, or I might say, I know you're going to this thing. I really don't want to go. Um, I wish I could be there for you, but this is the reason I don't want to go. And, you know, so I'm doing that a lot, exercising that a lot and taking care of myself a lot. So I think it taught me that in a, in a really hard, it was a hard way to learn it, but I think it taught me that. And do you have any words of wisdom or advice for anyone who is going through the exact same thing or has been through the same thing as you? Uh, yeah, absolutely, because I've been thinking about this. And I think my, my biggest mistake, the thing that I think I should have done that would have really changed everything, um, well, really two things. But one is that um, I really think it's important to never, never um, keep things away from your friends and family. I think you need to confide with friends and family. If there's some weird flags going on, I think you need to confide. And if those flags amount to nothing, your family and friends will support you. But I think that if you keep it in and you don't share it, it you, you lose perspective. And that's what happened with me. I was so afraid to talk to anybody about it. Um, and I think the other thing is not to involve your children um, in a relationship that you're in and until you're really, really a thousand percent sure. And now for the rest of my life, I will bounce things off friends. I will not keep stuff inside because I think that protects you when you share with other people. Well, Quinn, I want to thank you for being here with me today. It was my pleasure. I feel like I learned a lot. <laughs> you know, you had a lot of very helpful uh not just stories, you were able to really succinctly put some things with some really interesting metaphors. So, you know, people learn a lot through metaphors and you did a really good job at doing that. So uh, thank you very much for, for doing that. I know you're going to help a lot of people. So thank you again from the bottom of my heart for being here. I'm happy that you are doing well, that you're married and that you're out of it. And, you know, thank you for being part of our show. Thank you. And for everyone who is listening from Quinn and I, we hope you have a good night.